The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I will be your host today on this episode. This is episode number 119. And today we have an interview with Jen Jimenez. As one of the nation's leading advocates on addiction recovery, Jennifer Jimenez has become a regular fixture on numerous television networks and across multiple social media platforms. Upon moving to the U.S. from Argentina, Jimenez was discovered by famed photographer Bruce Weber at the tender age of 13. The young and exotic beauty quickly ascended to international stardom, appearing on hundreds of magazine covers from Vogue to Bazaar and Marie Claire, and was the youngest model ever to appear on the cover of American Elle. Surrounded by a fast-paced Hollywood lifestyle and unprepared for the trappings of fame, Jimenez eventually found herself at the mercy of her own drug and alcohol demons. Both her personal and professional life spiraled out of control, and her Hollywood dream had become a dark and lonely place. Ultimately, Jennifer found the courage to reclaim her life and take control of her career. Her journey back to sobriety and her story of redemption are now part of her message to others looking to find their own path to happiness. So Jen, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. I am so excited to be on. Thank you so much. It's such an honor and a privilege to be on and to be asked to even share my story is so cool. I would have never thought this, you know? Well, I think one of the most powerful things about this podcast really are the different stories that we share because the hope is always that the stories that we te- that are told will resonate with someone who's listening and it will yeah. prompt that person to either get help for themselves or <laughs> help for others so i think that the more stories we can tell the better and so I appreciate you telling yours today. I love that. I love that you say that. You know, when you started saying that, in the, I start. I thought to myself, you know, um, when I first started getting trying to get sober, it, I was 21 years old. I'm. It's been 21 years since I've been trying to get sober, and uh, I'm 42 now. So I, um, I, I don't even know why I just shared that information. That was really not the most. <laughs> I don't even care. Who cares? Sometimes I'm like, oh my god, I just shared that. Um, but, uh, I didn't have this outlet, you know, I didn't have a place where, you know, I felt like I could relate. Like, I really feel we all have, we all come from different places. Our stories are different, but our emotions are the same, you know, pain is pain, sad is sad, happy is happy. And for so long, I felt like I didn't relate or could connect to anyone. And today it's people like you that give us a place where we feel that we can connect and we know we can connect. And really this is a matter of the heart and the spirit, really, you know, what I'm trying to, to overcome and in the adversities I'm trying to overcome. And it's like my spirit is being filled by people like you. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Now, the way I typically like to start these is tell us how you got started on drugs. Okay, so I guess I'll start from the beginning. My family's from Argentina. Um, I'm first generation born in America. My parents decided to have an American child. Name me one of the most common names, Jennifer, and raised me back in Argentina. 
And uh, in Argentina, Buenos Aires, where I grew up uh, until I was six and a half, you know, my family's very intermeshed, intertwined. Everyone's always together for lunches and dinners. And, um, you know, I remember our tables would be filled with so much food and ever, all the families would be around. And, and I'd call everyone that was there, aunts and uncles, even if they weren't. And uh, I remember that the drinks were on the floor. And this visual I always remember, like the more they poured, the longer the parties lasted. I equated drinking to happy growing up. And, um, we came back to California in, when I was six and a half years old. And, you know, they, if I look back and after I've done so much work on myself, I, um, I realized like I was already uniquely different back then. You know, I didn't fit in. I'm, I'm a native Californian. I do not look like the typical California girl at all. And I didn't speak English. I spoke Spanish and I had to learn everything all over again. And, you know, my family, um, Growing up in, in California later on, uh, you know, the drinking, they weren't having so much fun anymore. And I started seeing it really weird. And, and I really do believe we're all trauma survivors of some sort. I also believe we didn't, us addicts and alcoholics or people in recovery, we either didn't get coping skills or we lost them along the way. Therefore, we created our survival mechanisms. Right. And uh, with all, all the trauma growing up um, and, you know, having my parents split and, and all the things that were going on. Um, I remember at age 12, one day I was taking care of my little brother and uh, I was in the kitchen making him a sandwich and I looked into the dining room. My parents had a liquor cabinet and I thought to myself, God, I just want to feel like they did in Argentina because I created drinking to happy. And I went and I poured my first cup and uh, in that cup, I put all these different liquors in there and I took my first drink until this day. My perception tells me it felt like this It went down into my throat and it was warm and fuzzy and it got into my stomach. And all of a sudden, it imploded in there, and I felt like a cross between the Jolly Green Giant, Wonder Woman, and She-Ra. Like, I felt like I had arrived, right? And <laughs> that release, you know, of that alcohol, of that drink. You know, my little brother was next to me, and he was like, ooh, I'm going to tell on you. And I was like, shut up. And he bribed me. And um, I gave him all my change, and I eventually ran out, and little jerk-off went and ratted on me that night. And, uh, you know, my parents came. My dad actually showed up that night, and they put my parents put me on restriction for the rest of my life. And that probably lasted, like, 40 minutes, you know, right. and I say that because there's never any consequences to my actions. I really had no idea what alcoholism was, addiction. I never knew about it, never heard about it, um, or recovery or anything, a disease or anything like that. But I got to tell you, that first drink for me, that progression of my disease, I, you know, led me to everything and anything else. I always, I, I like to say that it was like the beast was awakened, you know, and I didn't become a full-fledged alcoholic the next day. Right. Um, but my first drink, you know, that was the, the day that I remember that first drink. And, you know, um, it helped me escape for a moment. You know, what was going on and all this stuff. And, and through the years when um, I was 13 years old, I was at the Santa Monica Pier with my mom and my little brother on a Sunday afternoon. And this photographer named Bruce Weber, till this day, still one of the biggest photographers in the world, came up to my mom and I and said, you know, I'm shooting this thing for this really big designer. I'm a legit photographer. Your daughter has the right look. Can she show up tomorrow? It starts tomorrow. And, you know, of course, my mom was a little, you know, was hesitant. And I uh, manipulated and convinced her that night to let me show up the next day. And my life went from growing up in dirt roads and donkeys in Argentina to becoming a supermodel overnight. Wow. Um, I, I had, we had no idea, like, what this whole thing was, you know, the entertainment world and modeling world and stuff and what all that entailed. But um, my life... Um, Drinking really kind of helped cope with all the mask I wore. You know, um, I try to fit in when I went to school from my freshman year to my senior year. 
I'd go to school like maybe two months out of the year, but I got the diploma. I did graduate. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd fit in like a normal kid in public high school and then I'd run home and deal, deal with all the chaos that was going on in my, in my person, my home life. And, uh, and then I was thrown in this adult entertainment world where I was literally selling sex when I didn't know what that was about. Um, you know, I, I've been on almost every cover of every magazine all over the world. I've done catwalks all over the world. I, um, I've done music videos with people like Tupac and Babyface and Prince and Mick Jagger and Lionel Richie and the list goes on. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I wore many, many masks and drinking, you know, through the years, it helped. And then I, I, I started going into blackouts, you know, but through that time, and I think this is such an important thing to, to, for me to talk about is I was, I started with my eating disorders and I didn't know about that. You know, when I got discovered, I was five, six. Um, I'm 5'10 now, so my body started developing, you know, I was 13, turning 14, and I started getting curves. I'm Latin. And, uh, you know, the supermodels taught me how to eat boxes of laxatives and, and lettuce, and, you know, uh, somebody said, you know, you should throw up after you eat. And I started doing that, started binging and purging, and I started, you know, the alcoholism allowed me to escape, and the pressures of what I put, my, my, uh, put upon myself. Um, and that is where it kind of exploded a little bit. It, implo- it, it exploded later in my teenage years, my later teenage years. But um, I tried different drugs, and I have to tell you, I was kind of like a trash can. Nothing really worked. But alcohol seems to make me have blackouts, and it, made, it worked. And then I was uh, around 18 years old. I was with these two models. And I always say I was probably a great model because I'm a great chameleon. It's one of my survival mechanisms. Um, and, and, uh, I remember being at one of these girls house and, uh, they were drinking out these beautiful champagne, you know, glasses. I'm not even 18 yet, but close to it. And I remember one of them, you know, was telling me what kind of crystal glass it was. And I was like, Oh, I should get some, like, where was I going to put it in my mom's house? You know, I was always <laughs> just trying to fit in. Um, and those early teenage years where you need to develop, you know, self-esteem, self-worth. Like, it, well, I was not being taught that. I was only as good, and they told me this over and over again. Like, I was only as good as my next job cover campaign. Um, and who I was is what I did. So, you know, who I am today is so different than what I do. I mean, I love what I do. I think we should all find our passion and do it. But what I do for a living helps me, you know, buy water and, you know, take care of my family or whatnot. But who I am on the inside, there's so much more depth and weight to me today. Right. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of work for me to come to this place. But, you know, I think society still says, like, you are what you do. You know, you're, you're a nurse, you're a mother, you're this, you're that. We're human beings trying to, you know, we're, we're <laughs> spiritual beings really trying to have a human experience. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and I think that was a really big moment for me when I heard that in recovery, that I am a spiritual being trying to have a human experience, because I don't know, sometimes I put so much, you know, I've caught myself like wanting to put pressure on myself. And I'm like, you know what, I'm doing the best I can with what I got at this moment. Um, but I got to tell you, this, these girls that I was at their house, um, this one girl all of a sudden brings out this white china plate and pours all this white powder on there. They roll up this $100 bill, they start cutting it up, and they start sorting away. And they said to me, do you want to have some? And I was like, yeah, I haven't done some in a while. Like, I had never tried cocaine up until this moment. But the minute I did that first line, I was talked. For me, cocaine gave me a heartbeat like nothing else ever has. And it was game on after that, you know. Um, 
And that was really my drug of choice. But I have done everything and anything else. Wow. So you were 18 when you first tried cocaine. Yes. And I did that geographic change, you know, that they talk about. You know, uh, for three years, I was still modeling. Um, the day I graduated high school, I left the next day to Europe. And, you know, it was about the drink and drug, really. Um, and I all stayed my welcome in Paris after a while. And then it was Milan. And then it was London. And then I was like, Asia's going to save me, you know. And I went to Japan. And, you know, I'm 21 years old. This is what my life looks like. Um, I act like I got it going on. But I'm back at mommy's house. Um, and, uh, on this day, I realized that I was on a five day run. I don't know if you, you've ever experienced that where you realize not that like, Oh, that just happened, but you realize you're in that moment or whatever moment that is. And I realized I haven't slept. I haven't eaten. I haven't showered. Um, and you know, I don't know if people drinking and using is not showered, but that was my thing at times. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I was like, Oh my God, I'm in this, you know? And, um, I went out that night. I went to this place called Bar Mama and uh, I was talking to all these people and, and uh, I remember this one girl I knew came up to me and she was like, oh, at the end of our conversation, she's like, who are you here with? And I was like, I'm all alone. And something happened. It was like, alone, 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 all night long. And I couldn't make that echo go away, you know, to save my life. And I got back to my mom's house and like, I was trying to come down and all of a sudden I find myself um, at the edge of my bed, just rocking in the same motion, you know, in the same thought. And it was like, well, how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to figure this out? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then I just went, I know how. I should go cop. I should go get a little bit more. And like, how long have I been living like that? Probably for a long time, but I really felt it. Like I'm getting, I'm having all these little moments. And um, sure enough, I get in my car. My mom lives close to Pasadena, which is 30 minutes outside of LA. And I was going to my guy's house in LA and I was on the street called Fairfax. I was going north on Fairfax. I was going to make a ride on this cross street called Fountain. It was early in the morning. And I'm jonesing and the sun's coming out. So it's glaring at this building while I'm three cars behind to make that right. And uh, I look over and there's all these guys and they're smoking at um, this wall and they're all tatted up and they look, you know, somewhere in hats and hoodies. And I'm like, Oh my God, those hot guys, what are they doing there? I love that. I can remember they were hot. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden I turned, I turned really slow. And I, I mean, I must've been turning really slow. And I say that because, there was a girl at the corner of the street and she was smoking a cigarette and she looked at me and we made eye contact and she said, it's in here, it's in here. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this must be an after hours. That's why there's so many hot people here. And uh, I turned, I pulled over, you know, and I've, I've done that before. I've walked into an after hour or five um, and, uh, and I pull over and now I, you know, I'm paranoid and I'm, I'm jonesing and, and it took me a hot minute to get out of the car and I go into these double doors of that building and I hear people in this room and I open the room and all of a sudden I hear wah, 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 wah. And people are in a circle and they're clapping. And I'm like, oh, shit. Now, mind you, I'm paranoid. So I don't know if everyone was looking at me, but in my head, everyone was looking at me. And uh, I saw everyone and I like there's empty seats by the door and I sat by the door and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't care if you're drunk, high or sober. We're very intelligent people. If anyone's ever told anyone that's listening right now that anything less than that, please shut those voices voices up do not underestimate yourself and uh i'm watching people they're standing up i guess they're saying their name and again i'm trying to figure out what's going on here because i think it's an after hours and this guy three seats over i guess he stood up and said his name and i'm like do you have to intro yourself before the party starts you know and uh <laughs> all of a sudden i kid you not 
uh, all of a sudden I stood up and, you know, I was like, it's my turn. And I was like, shit. And like Jonesy, mind you, like, you know, jaw going. And uh, I'm like, my name is Jennifer. I'm like, you, you know, and they all applauded and I kind of waved. And I got really embarrassed. I put my head, like my hands over my head and I sat down. I don't know why I waved, but I was like, oh shit, like Twilight Zone, like not what I thought, you know? <laughs> and I was mad that I got in there. And, uh, and I'm like, I gotta go. So I planned my exit strategy a couple of moments later. I get up and I leave and I'm about to walk through those double doors. And all of a sudden I hear a voice. Um, I hear a guy behind me saying, Jennifer. Now, mind you, this time it was actually a real voice. It was a guy. And I turn around and I flick my hair and I'm trying to be all seductive. And I was like, yeah, jaw grinding, nose dripping, sweating profusely. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's like, you know, there's a meeting here tomorrow at noon. You should come. Uh, and I looked at him and I was like, all right, cool. Thanks. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy so wants me, right? I'm so vain and <laughs> considerate, self-centered. Like, I literally thought the world revolved around me. And um, and I, uh, I just nodded, you know, and like, I turned around, I get in my car, and, like, I literally walked into an, an, an NA meeting that day. Right. I had no idea. In a church, by the way, and that church still exists. They just painted it, like, a rose color outside. Now it's no longer white. And um, it's so crazy, you know, of all places to walk into when you're going to go score. Wow. And uh, I'm sitting in my car, and I'm like, God, you know, I know I need to come down. Like, I knew that. And I'm like, maybe I should go home and, like, sleep this off, because I've done that before. So I was like, yeah. So I go home for him, that guy. And um, I ate for him and I slept for him. I showered for him. I got up the next morning for him and I got all done up for him. And I showed up that next day for, at that meeting for him. And uh, now there's all these people there and they're all hugging me from the day before, the people that were there. And, you know, I remember like people were like, you made it. Welcome back. And I remember this one guy I'll never forget. He grabbed me really tight and he's like, girl, you're not gacked out. And I pushed him and I was like, what up? Like, what is your problem? You fake ass. You know, I don't know if I'm allowed to do bad words, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, he's, and he looked at me, he's like, just welcome back, you know, and I'm looking for the guy and the meeting started, the meeting ended. And I got to tell you, I've never seen him since. Wow. I think that guy, I think he told me his name was Dave. I can't fully remember. But to me, that man is my angel, my Eskimo. I'm eternally grateful for that man. All he said that day was, keep coming back. You're welcome here. And the seed was planted. And it's never, ever, ever been the same since. Wow. Um, it was, you know, and it, it's like kind of like, you know, you just never know. You never know that, that person that looks at you and smiles at you or welcomes you, even if you're walking down the street, like how much that can change your day, you know. And that yep. guy for me literally is my Eskimo. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kept coming back cause they were so, they were not judgmental. No one questioned me. No one belittled me. And everyone had been doing that to me at that point. And I came back every day and all of a sudden I cleaned up and I cleaned up really quick and I started getting all the jobs back. And, you know, I got a him in my life and God bless him. Him became my higher power until him fucked up my fantasy. Then him no longer was my, you know, was my higher power. Then there's another him. And, you know, they told me to keep getting a, a female sponsor. And of course I kept asking guys to sponsor me and they'd be like, nah, kid, you got to ask a female. And I'd get so mad, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I never did any internal work, but what I did was I cleaned up quick and I made it, I like to call it shiny and pretty on the outside, you know, um, but what I suffer, what we suffer from is a spiritual malady, that void, that hole, you know, just got bigger and bigger on the inside, but I made it shiny and pretty on the outside and everything was always fine. And because I cleaned up, I, I wanted to switch careers from modeling. I wanted to end modeling before it ended me. 
And uh, I, one of the things I did with Bruce Weber, who discovered me, was a movie. Um, when I first started modeling, my third job was a movie called Let's Get Lost, a documentary on Chet Baker. And just a few years ago, I found out that that movie was nominated for Best Documentary. It won the Cannes Film Festival, Venice Film Festival. Like, my first movie was nominated for an Oscar. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Um, and I loved being in front of the camera, and I loved that my voice mattered. Because as a model, anytime I had a creative input, um, my voice didn't matter. They told me I was just a hanger. I was irreplaceable. There wasn't a day that I wasn't, you know, uh, completely, you know, torn apart. I know every imperfection there is about me. Um, at, you know, at age 13, they would tell me I'm too tall, too short, too ethnic. My hair is, you know, too brown, too red, too this, too that. Um, you know, I know every imperfection. Right. And, uh, and the, my voice mattering and acting, like, really really meant a lot, obviously, you know, and uh, I started studying. And because I cleaned up at that point, um, I got my first movie role, uh, my big breakout role. I didn't know, you know, about, you know, the documentary at that point. Um, and it was my first movie, uh, my first movie role in a movie called Blow with Johnny Depp. Right. And uh, here I am doing, you know, Blow and I'm the you know, drug lord's <laughs> wife, crazy coked out Colombian woman and from the 70s. Ironic, the irony of that one. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like you know, I win all these awards for breakthrough performance and blah blah blah, and it's like if they only knew. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm doing that movie, then I get Vanilla Sky, then I get Charlie's Angels, and like I got to tell you, I was sober at the beginning of Blow, and clearly not in the end. And I say that to you because there was never it, whatever I equate success to be for me or failure, I was bound to relapse. I had no foundation. You know, I think it's important, whatever it is that we're going through, we're struggling with, that we need to find that foundation yep. and to, you know, build from the inside out. Yep. And uh, I was bound to relapse. So that revolving door, that vicious cycle that they talk about started for me, you know, and I'm the new it girl in Hollywood and, and uh, I'm doing Charlie's Angels and, you know, Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and I'm doing this um, and Corky Romano and blah, sweetest thing with Jason Bateman, Cameron Diaz, you know, Christina Applegate, Samuel Blair, the whole thing. And I couldn't stay sober to save my life. I got a lot of three days. I got some like six months here and there. But I did know that like in my eyes, when the going got tough, and I say that, you know, lightly, because when I thought I needed to clean up, I'd go into the rooms and I would do the same thing over and over again. I'd clean up and then I'd get another job or a him or something. And it was all outside stuff I was searching for to fix me on the inside. And um, I'm at the top of my game again. And uh, I, I, um, I, I relapsed and I, I'm walking down uh, this red carpet at the Man's Chinese Theater. Um, it's the movie Anchorman. It's June 28th of 04. I relapsed. While walking into that um, that man's Chinese theater, I take that drink. This guy's standing there with a tray, and just like that again, because I hadn't done the inner work, I relapsed. In eleven and a half months, I have to tell you, my life got really dark, really small, really quick. I ended up in my shoebox of my shoe closet. The world was after me. In California, we have a lot of helicopters. So anytime I heard helicopters, they were after me. My mom had the church in the trees. I thought. I mean, it was bad. I dislocated my jaw in a gacked out moment. Um, wow. I actually suffered a mini stroke um, uh, that night. I pulled all the things, all the IVs out of me at the hospital, and I just wanted to get back home. I thought I was going to prison forever. It just scared me. Um, 
you know, just ignorance is bliss at that point. And, uh, you know, and I did a lot of bad things. Like I hurt my mom, you know, and I, she finally left and I called the dealer and I kept using the insanity of my disease, you know, and I kept using after that stroke. Um, and uh, finally, my mom, and my best friend, Brandy, come to me and uh, they say to me, now, mind you, my nose is bleeding, jaw disconnected, forget showering, that one week's on end. And they came to me and they said, we can't watch you die like this. You need to give yourself a shot. You need to go into treatment. And I looked at them and I said, treatments for losers. Now, I just described you what I look like. Wow. And uh, that day, I don't know if anyone's ever had an intervention done on them <laughs> or someone telling them that they were concerned about them. It didn't go very well. That day didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought it was a bright idea to go and start throwing everything that came my way and hurt those two women that only wanted to see me well. And uh, not a proud moment, but I think it's really important for me to tell my truth. You know, that's what I was taught in recovery. That's what I was taught. And I don't mind sharing it with the world. You know, I have no shame in having, you know, gone through the obstacles and, you know, the trials and tribulations of my life. Um, I think that this can help somebody else if they've ever gone through this. Absolutely. Um, Because shame, shame's a big one, you know, and I no longer have that shame. But uh, I I ended up hurting them. And uh, I went on a two-week run. And I went, I went, all right, I'm going to shut these two women up. I need to sleep and eat anyways. I'll go to treatment. I'll go under my terms. You know, I love when people are like, I'm going under my terms. I'm like, all right, tough guy, <laughs> go ahead. Let's go under your terms. And I was going for five days, you know, and uh, I walked into this place um, in Pasadena. It was July 5th of 2005. A woman of the world could speak four languages, resume, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was so scared shitless. I wore a low, big hat, like covering my eyes, big ass glasses, and a zip up hoodie. So, like, it was zipped up up to my chin. I was so scared shitless on the journey I was about to embark on. Like, I had no idea what treatment was about. And um, when my detox alone lasted three and a half weeks, um, I had this one doctor. His name is Dr. Drew. God bless him. Uh, he says that he's like, I always remember you throwing chairs at me. I wasn't malice. I just did things for reaction. And like Drew would never give me reaction. Um, he's so like, he so understands an addict. It's, it's wild. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my detox lasted three and a half weeks. He had called my mom three different occasions saying I may die from the alcohol withdrawals. I was having so many seizures. Um, they, I remember all these doctors looking over at me. Um, I had a plethora of doctors and, uh, I remember one of like them saying like, what should we diagnose her? I think she's this and that. And I just looked up at them and I was like, addict perhaps? Like, yeah. Hell? You <laughs> know? And, uh, they diagnosed me everything. God bless those guys. Um, not Drew, but all the other doctors. And, um, and, uh, finally from the detox at Los Encinas where I went, it's, there's like, you go into like these cottages and like WC Fields died there and Marilyn Monroe used to go and Clark Gable and all these people. And there was no gyms or pools or anything like that. Like now when I hear about everyone having pools and gyms, I'm like astonished, you know, <laughs> like we didn't have like, uh, we didn't have acupuncture or anything like that. We had like a cafeteria. Um, but it was supposedly a fancy place that I went to, and we didn't have all the luxury things that they have today. And, um, you know, I, uh, they shut down my short-term memory. I have to tell you, my main doctor, God bless him, he was a mad, I called him the mad chemist. They, he had me so high in treatment. Oh, my God. Like, they had me just to sleep alone. This is what a not- nightmare I was. 
1200 milligrams of Seroquel alone. Wow. Like that is, yeah, it's like just psychotic at that point. Um, and, uh, they had me on like 900 trazodone. They had me on lithium that almost killed me three times and Bilify made me want to get naked and try to fly off the roof of my room, my building. It was crazy. I thought it was a bird. I'm not kidding you. Um, I, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, sorry, I heard a little beep right there. Um, and uh, I, I was on like uh, lithium. Okay, and Bill, Risperdal made me like crazy. I thought it was like from the hood, and I wanted to always fight guys. I don't understand. I mean, I was on so many meds when I was in treatment, and uh, I found out probably like five weeks into treatment that I was pregnant in treatment, and uh, because of the waiver that I signed, I had to go through a forced mis- miscarriage. I think it was the RU46 or something like that. It just got legalized at that time. Again, it was, uh, it was not legal for a while. And uh, I had to go through this forced miscarriage. And, you know, I remember going through that experience and just them just giving me more and more meds, you know, afterwards. And um, I was like, I don't know if you ever saw the celebrity rehabs or the sober house shows that Dr. Drew did on VH1. Um, um, no, I didn't. There is this guy, he was a counselor on the show, and he was actually my counselor in real life at Los Encinas where I went, and uh, his name is Bob Forrest. And Bob is, like, he's awesome. He's, like, best friends with Anthony Kiedis. He has this uh, documentary called Bob and the Monsters. It's an amazing documentary. He helps a lot of people. Like, he's been in, like, 26 treatment centers. He just gets it. And um, and he, like, in process group, like, he'd be like, how are you doing today? You know, and I'd be like, I don't know. How the hell do you want me to be? You want me to be happy? You want me to cry? What the fuck do you want from me? You know, and I literally meant those words. Like, what do you want me to feel? And I'll do that for you. Because I had no idea what I felt. Right. Like, no one ever taught me to describe what I felt like, how I feel about anything. You know, and again, my voice didn't really matter. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, go to theaddictionpodcast.com or visit and like our Facebook page by the same name or email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or call us at 727-314-7080. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 877-339-3324. Please subscribe to the Addiction Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Do you have a loved one struggling with drug addiction or alcohol addiction and you've tried everything to help them and failed? Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast for a 10% discount or Go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. That's newmaninterventions.com, N-E-W-M-A-N-I-N-T-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S.com. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
do it today. And, uh, and I just remember like after that miscarriage, um, I just kept like going on and on and on. And like, I was just terrible. Like I, the louder I got, the more I thought that like people would stay away from me, you know? Um, and the more I didn't have to deal with people getting to know me and then realizing the monster that I really was. Wow. You know, that was a big thing for me. Um, and so it was easier to keep you at arm's length than to have you come close to me and realize that I'm that monster that I thought I was. Um, and, uh, and, you know, now it's like the end of October. Those five days lasted a little bit longer than I thought from July 12th. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'm not feeling good. And, and I'm kind of like getting bigger and bigger, but I'm not feeling good inside. And I kept saying, I don't feel good. And they're like, no shit, you're in treatment. And I was like, no, 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 I don't feel good inside. And uh, I kept begging to go to my doctor in LA. And I went to my doctor and um, he told me that I was still pregnant with that baby that was now dead inside me. Oh, and my, uh, my HCG levels were at like 1100. I believe it's 1300. We were considered dead. He said I had another week of that to live. And uh, he had to do emergency DNC that day. And I just looked at him and I went, okay, whatever, you know. And uh, now I've got a few months under my belt. And uh, I have to be really honest with you. I can't believe I'm sharing all this. I remember when I laid at that on that table, I went, what the hell? And I felt, you know, and that day that doctor decided to do it with no sedation. And not only did I feel everything that was going on, oh. I felt because I've got months under my belt so i've got a little bit of clarity right yeah feelings are coming back and i thought to myself what am i doing on this cold table why am i here doing what i'm doing how did i get here why am i in treatment my poor mother my poor father my poor brother my careers anyone that liked me or loved me like what the hell am i doing you know and um it was a little bit too much for me um to deal with uh that day i went back and i told them you know, what had happened and I had no sedation and they were like, don't worry, just rest, you know, don't worry about going to groups or anything like that. And, uh, the next day I asked the um, nurse to bring me a tech to help me walk to group because I wanted to go to group. And the girl that thought it was groundhog day and hated everyone. It was really loud, really so badly wanted to be a part of the group. I wanted so badly. So I, I showed up and I just wanted to be accepted, you know, and I so badly want, but again, if I, you got to know me, you'd realize I was a monster. Um, and I go into group that day and Bob is doing group and he looked at me and obviously the staff knew what was going on, but the group didn't. And he looked at me and he said, how are you doing today, kid? And I just looked at him and I shook my head and I said, I don't know. I have no idea. And uh, we just, he just sat there in this uncomfortable silence. It felt like eternity, but it was probably 30 seconds. And he nodded his head and he said, that's a good place to start, kid. Mm. You know, and let us help you get through this. Let us help you get through this and get you to the next, through the next trauma, the next trauma. And I shared with everyone um, what had happened. And everyone in that group supported me and everyone embraced me. People, some of the people cried with me. And like through that horrific experience, I had a beautiful moment. Wow. Um, and I really think this whole thing called life is about moments on top of moments on top of moments. Right. And uh, I will forever be grateful for that group that day. But it got too real, you know, and I don't know about people who ever feel like I can't show my vulnerability, you know, it shows a sign of weakness. Well, that's what I felt like. And uh, 
you know, then a couple of days later, I ended up uh, relapsing. Uh, I'm one of those people that relapses in treatment. Uh, I broke the dynamic. I awakened the beast for everyone else. But I don't share. I never have. Never wanted to put anyone else in, like, harm's way. Um, and they quickly found out that I was acting different and everyone got tested. And I'm the one, only one that kept testing positive. And I was like, there is a conspiracy against me. Dr. Drew does not like me. Don't you get it? And, like, you know, they were looking at me and they are like, you're lying. And they're about to blood test me, and this uh, they remove me from the group, and this, the head nurse comes in, and she's like, I want to let you know something right now. They're all having a meeting, and this is what's going to take place. Um, they're going to come back in here. They're going to tell you you're going to blood test, and you're going to blood test, and you're going to test positive because you and I know that you're high right now. And for some reason, you don't think you deserve to live, but we're, we're going to help you live. And uh, I looked at them, and, and she said, and if you go, if not, and we're going to put you in the psych ward you know, and detox you again. And all I kept thinking was psych ward, that's for crazy people. I can't go there. And so I AMA'd and I left for 10 weeks. And um, in those 10 weeks, I was buying over an eight ball a day. And all I was thinking about was my group and treatment and Dr. Drew's little stupid smirk he does. And like, you know, Bob Forrest's red hair, what shade red was, did he have? And who had a problem with who or who was hooking up with who and group, you know? And I just couldn't, you know, I was trying to get as high as possible and I couldn't feel high. I would come to with cigarettes burning on my finger and I was buying cocaine. So I didn't understand that. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about everyone and I didn't feel high. And for a girl like me who wants to numb and escape herself, that's a horrible place to be. Right. And uh, finally, my poor mom came to my house and said, Jenny, I'm going to pack your bags. You're going to come to the house. You're going to stay with me. I don't care if you use at the house. I need to be with you. I bared you into this world, and I want to watch you take your last breath. You don't deserve to die alone. Wow. And I was okay with that. I don't know. It kind of cracks me up a little bit. Uh, it makes me want to just start crying. Yeah. It not cracks me up like laughing. But No, no, no. I get um, it. <laughs> and uh, my little brother would call me every day and say, Jenny, if you die, a piece of me is dying. Please, not today. I beg you. I love you so much. I can't live without you. And I was okay with that one, too. And finally, uh, one day I was using at my mom's house. I finished using my stuff. I went into a room and uh, I said, take me back to treatment. And uh, there she was on her knees, you know, praying like she was every single day. And uh, she got me in the car and all of a sudden, like, I don't know if anyone's ever asked for help and then realized you asked for help and didn't want the help. <laughs> I was literally in moving motion when that happened. Right. Um, I, uh, I, I started trying to kick the windshield and nothing was working. Alamon had gotten a hold of my mom. At that point, thank God, Alanon never got a hold of my mom prior to me going into treatment because <laughs> um, I would have been standing outside with a shotgun. <laughs> um, and she didn't budge. And I went into treatment and they tested me that day and I tested positive for horse tranquilizer, rat poison, um, heroin, gasoline, name it. It was in there, speed, everything. Wow. And my main doctor told me he needed to detox me in the psych ward um, and uh, it's off of off of the uh, narcotics, uh, off of the opiates with narcotics. And, you know, the girl that ran 10 weeks prior just looked at him and just shrugged her shoulders and said, whatever. And I remember that day going into the psych ward unit and, you know, they take away shoelaces, plastic objects, anything you can hurt yourself or anyone else away from you. Um, and I remember being in that elevator and the double doors opening and then the double doors slamming shut and all that from the locks. Yeah. Um, there was a line that friends and family couldn't cross. And I see this guy to the right of me and his eyes are rolling back. He's in a wheelchair and he's drooling. And I just went, well, how did I get here? Like, what, what's going on? Like, 
But I felt like in my head, I felt like dead woman walking, you know? Yeah. And there was this guy at the end of the hallway who was screaming at the top of his lungs. He was getting jumped by two techs. And um, he was trying to run down the corridor naked. God bless him. Uh, and uh, my room was the last room to the left. And I went in there and the techs knew me because I'd been in treatment for so long. And uh, one of the techs said, I'm gonna, I'll, the tech said, I'll be right back. I got to go get the med sheet with the doctor and I'll come right back. And I said, I need to go to the restroom anyways. And there is no doors connecting from the bathroom into the bedroom. And when I got up from peeing, I realized that the idiots forgot the belt. And just like that, I looked up and there was all these objects up on the ceiling. And I got on top of one of the beds. I put my belt through one of the objects. I secured it and I put my neck through there. And the last thing I remember on January 16th, um, 2006, was my feet were dangling and everything went black. And when I came to, I was in a five-point strap. Um... And I was so upset. I was so upset because I couldn't live and I couldn't die correctly. And I was stuck in this hell of a vessel called me. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a moment, you know. And uh, because of the fixation, I had a lot, a lot of complications. Um, I couldn't speak correctly. It took me three months to learn to form sentences again. I shook profusely my hands and feet. That took nine months to dwindle down. I would get up and I'd say in my brain, right foot move, and I'd fall. I was in a wheelchair. From a wheelchair, I went to a walker, a walker. I went to a cane, and I freely learned to walk again. That took about four or five, five months or so, actually. Um, I had no control of my bodily functions. I was in Depends. I like to call them diapers. Um, and, uh, and there I was, and I threw up profusely all over myself from the detox. And, um, one day I remember I was sitting by the window in my wheelchair and there's, uh, they have open meetings and stuff in different sections of the treatment center. It's all kind of open and, uh, I could hear a bunch of people, I guess they were going to a meeting and I was hanging onto the bars and it was double windows, the frost on it. And I could hear people laughing. So I opened it. It took like, you know, 10 minutes to open a quarter of an inch. And, um, and they were all like, I felt that I heard this chatter and I felt this feeling that I didn't understand. I could smell their smoke and, and they were all laughing and someone from far away was yelling at someone else. And I literally said in my head, God, is it humanly possible for a girl like me to ever feel what they're feeling? And if so, I'll go to any length. Wow. And I kid you not that girl that day that said that in that wheelchair still resides so alive inside of me, you know, I'll, I'll go to any lengths. And, uh, and I stayed from January 15th to April 30th. Um, I wanted to say it was Groundhog Day every day, but um, I was so desperate that day. I had the gift of desperation. And uh, they taught me in treatment, you know, I think treatment works for those who need to, that, that supervision. You know, I needed that structure. Right. When the going gets tough for me, I go back to making my bed every day and like, you know, getting on my knees and doing what I was taught there. Um, when the going gets rough for me or good, I do that. You know, um, I learned to identify what I was feeling in groups. You know, I learned to say I didn't know. Um, they removed all the privileges away from me. I had such self-entitlement issues that I needed that. I didn't care. You know, if they would have told me to jump on one foot and bark like a dog, I would have. <laughs> uh, you know, I really would have. At that point, like, I literally thought I was destined to be in that body that I was in, you know. Right, right. And it was scary because my brain worked perfectly. Right. Um, and when I left, I gave them the aftercare plan. I said I was going to follow through and I need to get my life back together. And I went back to L.A. and I had to get, you know, get it all back together. And what happened was 
I didn't have any game left in me. I did not know how to do this thing called life. I had no idea what this was all about. I didn't even know who I was, but I knew I was different. You know, I wasn't, I couldn't go back. Like, it was like, I look at it like as if I had a blank canvas, you know, because I had no game left in me and I had the gift of desperation. It is one of the most powerful places to be because you can paint the picture of the life that you want by having those two things. Right. But it took a while for me to figure that out, you know, and, um, you know, all I did was contemplate suicide and using every single day. And uh, at nine months sober, my sponsor said she couldn't sponsor me into a grave, but she could, she could enable me that way, but she could sponsor me into the program and with the, by doing the program and that I had to be willing to go to any lengths. And, uh, I looked at her and I said, what does that look like? And she said, you're going to put your life in storage and, um, you're going to move into a sober living. Now I had made millions, millions. I lost every single penny. I only had enough for a month and a half of sober living. And, uh, when I finished that month, uh, towards the, like the first week of the end of the half month, uh, I said to her, now what I'm going to go homeless. And she goes, I'm going to write down names of women that houses you could stay at. You know, um, you can't stay in their bedrooms because you manipulate any situation. You can stay in their guest rooms, spare bedrooms, guest home, uh, get outside guest homes or on their sofas or on their floors. And, um, and she said, get ready to dig deep. It's going to get really uncomfortable. You're going to go to meetings um, where I got sober and Crenshaw on 96. You're going to put a nickel between your legs and no relationship and no sex. You cannot drink, you cannot use, and you cannot hurt anyone or yourself. And I looked at her, literally, out of all the things she said to me, I said, and no sex? She goes, put a motherfucking nickel between your knees. And I was like, what? (laughs) She goes, you're not going to act out in any way. And, like, there were a lot of things I had to do that were not necessarily in the program. I had to wear my hair in a ponytail or in a bun. I couldn't wear any makeup. I had to go into the rooms de-masked. I had to hang my resume, my IQ at the door. Till this day, when I walk into any 12-step meeting, I hang my resume, my IQ. Um, I am another alcoholic, addict, whatever meeting I'm in, I qualify as. I I respect the rooms. It taught me to respect myself by doing that. Right. Um, I had to take commitments. um, And I got sober when my sponsor got sober. I'd go to those meetings in Crenshaw 96 at times. And, like, I got to tell you, those people, they rebirthed me. You know, wow. I say they taught me how to become a woman and they're still teaching me that, you know, the rooms are like, I don't know what's magical, what the secret is, but it's a magical place. It's a place that I don't have to be anything. You know, I'm demasked. I'm just there to try to, to try to feel better, you know, and, and right. to tell my truth. Um, when I'm desperate, I'll go to the rooms and I'll be like, yo, I need help right now. Like I'm the one burning desire girl, you know, like if I need it till this day, 13 and a half years later. Um, And, uh, you know, the program, like, I'm so glad that nowhere in any anonymous program did it say I have to look cute while recovering, because that is not my story (laughs) whatsoever. Um, I didn't, I couldn't look at like tabloid magazines or or news or e-news or any of that stuff. Like, I couldn't do any of that stuff. I had to dig deep, really, really deep. And, um, and I had to get thorough, like, I find the causes and conditions and get thoroughly honest. And I am so grateful for that ability. You know, I moved out of L.A. I called Hollywood a chapter. I thought I moved to Egypt. It was only an hour outside of L.A. Um, (laughs) And at two years sober, I realized that I weighed 267 pounds. So I went from being anorexic as a supermodel to obese. Uh, I was pushing a size 18. and, uh, And I 
moved out of LA and I was like, I guess this is where I'm at now. You know, like it's these <laughs> moments where like, okay, this is where I'm at. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be trapped in this body, you know, at, at when I first got sober this last time, uh, when I got sober this last time, I'm going to be the girl that her brain works, but nothing else does. And I overcame that. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to be this girl that's in this fat suit. Like, and that's what it felt like because I didn't connect to it so much. But at that moment, I realized when I really looked in the mirror that day, um, I realized I started crying like, why me? And then I started crying like, whoa, wait a minute. And the tears started changing. Like the reason why I was crying was because people were calling me and it was my birthday, my two year birthday. And they were like, you know, congratulations, kid. We love you. And like, my sponsees were calling me and they were like, thank you sponsor for everything. What should I do about this? And like all these people were loving me, not for what I look like on the outside or what I did or who I knew, but for who I am on the inside. Right. And I started crying because I realized that I had a foundation at that moment. Yeah. And I realized I like to call it my sobriety, but it's my power as well. That at that moment, I didn't need to get, you know, I don't need to ever give that up. Like it's mine, you know, and that's, that's what I honor today. And my foundation is only more solid and more concrete. There's more depth and weight to it today. Right. Um, and uh, at two and a half years sober, they told me it was, it was an aha moment. And I've had a few aha moments, but that one, this <laughs> one was, you know, they told me it was time for me to get a job. And I was like, I don't know who I want to be or what I want to do. And they're like, great, write down what you want to do and what you want to be and go apply at two places. I'm like, where? They're, and my sponsor was like, uh, Starbucks Coffee. Yeah, go apply those. I mean, Starbucks and Target. And I looked at her and I was like, what the fuck am I going to give them a headshot and a resume? Like, I have no job skills. Like, I had none, none, zero. <laughs> and she's like, write down who you want to be, what you want to do, and go apply at those places. Faith without works is dead. Oh, and dream big. And I looked at her like, yo, I could feel the humility. And she's like, dream big. Shoot for the moon. And I was like, I'm going to prove her wrong. <laughs> and I wrote down 85 things. And like, out of those 85, 45 of them have come true today. But, and I still wow. have those two sheets. Um, I look on January 15th and every year and I see what else came true actually 46 now because I'm now engaged um but but but, uh, I wrote down things like I want to make a difference I want to stand for something I want to be an advocate I want to be you know back on tv I want to be a magazine I want a businesswoman I want to be this I want to be that you know all these (laughs) things and um I went and I applied at all these places and I those play two places and I didn't get those two jobs but Dr. Drew came to me and said he was doing a spinoff show called Sober House on VH1 after Slubber Rehab after his first season. And I said, well, why do you, he's like, can you run the house? And I was like, why me? And I hadn't done reality shows. And, and uh, he's like, because, you know, he had predicted me dead the first year, by the way. He said I was one of those <laughs> hopeless cases that you just go through the motions, you know, and some of them have to die for the rest of them to get it. And uh, I said, why me? Because he knew I knew he said that. And he said, because it's people like you that prove me wrong and keep me doing what, you, what I'm doing. Wow. And um, I looked at him with a little smirk. And I think I said, ain't that about a bitch? Like, what a little <laughs> ass I am. But I love him. You know, I love Dr. Drew so much. He's given me a second chance. Uh, he, he, you know, I never, we never knew that being one of the first of the shows of bringing awareness to alcoholism and, and addiction, it was before intervention and all that that we would be part of this movement, you know, and me telling my truth and standing in my truth would actually possibly help somebody else. Um, And I did two seasons of those and I started losing weight. Um, I wanted to connect my body, mind and spirit. And uh, I went on CNN. They asked me to come and talk about eating disorders because in one of, you know, a bunch of magazines started putting me in their magazines, how I lost, 
you know, some weight. At that point, I had lost all the weight. But in total, I ended up losing uh, 140 pounds. That took years. You could see it through the years in in photos, you know, and shows (laughs) that I've done. Um, That's a whole nother story in itself. Um, (laughs) But I, uh, you know, I I become an advocate, you know, and I started fighting for people like me, you know, and, and I started telling my truth. And then I'd start going on you know, with Piers Morgan back in the day and Drew and everyone, I started co-hosting with Drew and like, I'd always say like Dr. Drew and Dr. Sanjay and everyone like, yo, I'm the addict here. I'm going to win, you know? And like, so <laughs> I, I always know like I'm fighting for a cause, a good cause, you know, because there's a huge epidemic happening today. Yep. Um, and you know, this is, it's not going to get any better. I mean, like, let's just be really real. What we can do is bring awareness and try to help those who want to help themselves. And, you know, the war on drugs is never, we're never going to win, you know, but we can make a difference. And that's the only thing I can do is just try to spread, spread love and, and hope to a universe, it feels like, that is so needed right now. We need, this universe right now needs love. Yep. <laughs> and that's the only thing I can say regarding that. You know, I try not to get into politics of anything. It's none of, you know, anyone's opinions on whatever they feel that's their right to feel that. But the only thing I can do is keep spreading love and hope. And talking about the severity of reality, and uh, I started doing other reality shows, and then I did this one, um, Housewives of Beverly Hills, for four seasons. I did it with my best friend, Brandy, who helped uh, save my life. And I did that because it was a huge platform for me to keep carrying the message. Um, it gave me an ability to keep carrying the message. And, and, uh, and then I wasn't having fun anymore until I stopped doing that show. Um, I think it's important to find your passion, you know, and, like, if I'm not having a good time or at least not passionate about what I'm doing, then I need to do something else. And... I uh, I went to Florida six and a half years ago to do a photo shoot. Didn't know Delray was capital of recovery. Quickly found out within the 30 <laughs> seconds that it was yeah. capital of recovery. And I bar- embarked on a new journey. Um, I launched a magazine and a website at the time. I no longer have that. But um, it was like, you know, speaking Chinese to me. I don't know that language. So, like, it was so cool to be able to to uh, have this magazine called Sober Book at the time. Uh, and it was about no names, no faces. Um, it was about finding your voice because so many people said I was the voice for the voiceless. And um, overcoming obstacles in adversity and telling on your truth, telling your truth. Like some people were talking about how they weren't o- overcoming it and why they felt they weren't overcoming it. And that's a, that's a solution too. Like someone else can relate to that. Right. You know, and um, there's no perfect way of doing this is what I'm trying to say here. Yep. And then all these celebrities started reaching out and they wanted to do these, um, they wanted to, you know, tell their story and Renee Graziano from the Mob Wives and Kirsten Johnson and my girlfriend Brandy talked about something uh, very honest about how she's not uh, in, in recovery, but, you know, she drinks to numb the pain at times. Yeah, she talked about in this thing and she's 50% mom and how her love for her kids and how valuable and important that is and being a strong woman, you know, and all this stuff. And it was like, it made a lot of headlines and it was a beautiful story that was written with her truth, you know, and, and, you know, I'm again, a person about talking about your truth. Um, And there's, there's no shame in where you're at or anyone's at in your life, whether it, you think it's good or bad, like to someone it's, it's an obstacle they overcome eventually. Um, if given the opportunity. And, uh, and then I started speaking all over the country and I found my passion. I found my niche and, uh, I'm forever grateful for that. Um, there is no price on that. Like when I go and I speak and I see like someone's reaction or someone laugh or cry or feel the same, uh, feel an emotion or the flicker in their eyes come on. I'm like, wow, I'm doing my job, wow. you know, cause it really, again, it's about feeling. And I've been blessed enough to do like four or five movies back. Um, 
my, you know, I, last year, um, I, I, I've been kind of vocal about this lately. I, um, I, I went through a lot of endings. Um, I was in a relationship that I was married without the papers and literally from one day to the next, it was deception and I cried and I got my heart broken and I got it broken and shattered. And I cried for three months. And I think at like two and a half months, I woke up one day and I started crying. I realized I wasn't crying over him. I was crying over me that I had lost my voice and I lost myself and that, um, and that I needed to refine myself. And it was like yet another rebirth. Uh, five years sober, it was like that. And last year, the job that I, I was doing before, it ended. I had been taking care of my family. I let go of every dollar by taking care of my family. So when it was time for me to take care of me, um, I didn't have any. And I just went, whoa, enabling, like, you know, and, and codependency <laughs> and all this stuff. And I literally, not joking you, was um, on my, I was in Florida, and I was on my balcony, and it was December. And I went, what's the fucking point? And I wanted to jump. And when I caught on to what happened, what I was thinking at that moment, and that I was leaning over, it freaked me out, just like that. You know, and I got in my, my room, and I got on my knees, and I said, God, I am not getting up until you remove that. What is going on? I mean, I was already removed by the time I figured it out. <laughs> right. And I said, just give me a sign. Give me a sign, you know, and. There I was challenging God at 12 and a half, almost 13 years sober. And uh, the next day I got the sign and I was like, oh, my God. Like, and it was like so evident. And uh, Tim came into my life, uh, Mr. Tim Ryan. And uh, we had been following each other for he wasn't the sign. There was another sign. But like <laughs> he uh, had we had been reaching out. Uh, we'd, we'd always supported each other through the years, like for two years. Like, hey, attaboy, keep going, have birthday, whatever, you know, but only through social media on social comments, you know, posts of whatever. And um, I, there was a few people I respected. They all happen to have been males because there's not a lot of females doing what I do that I know of, you know, it was a platform like this. And um, we, um, he got a hold of me and he said, you know, um, I'd like to talk to you about powering up together and like doing this thing. Um, and I was like, what? So he blew me off. I called him out on it like a week later. And I was like, nice coffee when you came in town. Yeah, jerk off. <laughs> and then he's like, you know, we talked for a couple of weeks and we were both, it was all about game. It was all about the job, you know, and what we were going to do together. And I just was like, okay, just don't be like those empty promises that I've had. Like be a man of your word, walk your talk. You know, I'm so about that. And uh, a few weeks later, uh, we I think a couple weeks later, we were on the phone and he was like, yeah, so let me schedule and I'm going to come out. I was like, oh, God, don't just stop. Like, <laughs> we'll figure it out whenever it happens. And at the end of the conversation, like two hours later, he was like, oh, look at your phone. Um, I sent you a text. And he had uh, booked a flight. Oh, and wow. he was going through a divorce at the time. <laughs> yeah, and he was going through a divorce at the time. And I picked him up at the airport a few days later. I don't even know how long later. And the minute I saw Tim... It was love at first sight. It was crazy. You know, they say that exists. I would have told you up until the day I met Tim, um, maybe I've had a lot of them that maybe that's the love at first sight, all the other ones created together. Um, I just didn't think it existed for me. And I got to tell you, it was love at first sight. And uh, I've never looked back since. And everything he had wanted to do work-wise with me has come to fruition it's like crazy wow and we're living together we're creating the life together and and the right now together and a future together and we're both very passionate it's like he's my equal you know wow. we're doing the same things and we're very passionate about what we do and we're about to open a treatment center in california like i never thought i'd come back to california and be doing this um 
it's like it's amazing we're shooting a reality show and and all this other stuff and we're speaking all across the country and you know i just see that man's dedication and he's so inspiring on a daily level that's awesome jen your <laughs> your story is awesome and i love what you're doing i love what you and tim are doing um jen if people wanted to have you speak for them how can people find you how could people do that they can get a hold of me at uh, at Tim Ryan and Jennifer Jimenez speak, uh, or Jennifer, Tim Ryan and Jennifer Jimenez.com. They can get a hold of me that way or through social media at Jennifer Jimenez on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my last name is spelled G I M E N E Z. Jennifer is J E N N I F E R. Uh, on Facebook, both my fan page or my personal page, it's Jennifer Jimenez. It's straight, just Jennifer Jimenez everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Jennifer, if you had just one message for our listeners, what would that be? You know, um, I want people to realize they're not alone, you know, and that they don't have to go through whatever it is that they're going through alone and that there is hope out there. And I think it's important for me to say that you know, I hope they try to get to know the person they're trying to kill before they kill him or her because they might realize that they matter and they are so loved and that their story is not done. It's up to them how they want to tell their story and that I can honestly tell them that I love them and that I'm here for them and I expect nothing in return. Just knowing that I'm trudging with different people is like the greatest gift out there and that I wish them the best. Uh. That's so awesome, Jen. And that's so much what we push on the podcast over and over again is there's hope. You're not alone. You just have to reach out. And I uh, so appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you found Jen's story inspiring, something you can relate to, something that spurs you on to get help if you need it. Once more, if you could please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating, that would be very helpful. We'll be back again next week. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 